Welcome to Susan Jane, the Susan Kane of podcasts. I'm Dancy. You said that with such a straight face. I'm I'm Cash. <laughs> what is not to say with a straight face? This is brilliance. I'm Veronica. It's the podcast where we talk about all our girl culture favorites. Uh, and we do so as people who are scholars, but we don't do this with any kind of scholarly rigor. So scholarly minds applied in an unscholarly fashion. We don't do it with scholarly rigor, but we do do it with wine. This week, we are talking about a topic near and dear to all of our hearts. Period dramas! Period dramas. Period drama! (laughs) (laughs) We all love period dramas. So this week we are taking on kind of the granddaddy of the period drama, the six-part BBC Pride and Prejudice. 1995. 1995. (laughs) It was truly the beginning of an era, the beginning of many sexual awakenings, I'm sure. The 2005 one does not exist in this diegesis. (laughs) What one? I don't know her. (laughs) Kira who? (laughs) I don't know her. (laughs) And we're going to contrast it with a later effort the North and South BBC miniseries that introduced the world to Richard Armitage. Also also a fine example. Um, and then <laughs> finally, we're going to round it out with a discussion of the film Bell. Basically, you could think of this as Pride and Prejudice, and then North and South as Pride and Prejudice plus Marxism. And then you could think of Bell as Pride and Prejudice plus Marxism plus race. So when we were trying to figure out what we wanted to talk about in this podcast, we were like, well, teen movies. And then we were like, also period dramas. Period mm-hmm. dramas. It's so good. Historical romance. Uh, And we got to thinking, what is it about period dramas that women like so much? Or I guess we could question this. Why are they always pitched to women? Why are they seen as a woman's genre? We're three women. We all like them. But I also recognize that this is an extremely white genre. And I'm a white girl. And like, what does it mean for me? Why to am take... I so attracted to that? Yeah, and I what find are the, the negative things of that attraction? Totally. I find these movies so enjoyable. But then as I'm watching them, I'm like, this is a movie that is not interested with about anybody who is not white mm-hmm. and of a certain class. Yeah. Why are we so obsessed with watching movies about historical periods where we know that if we were to actually occupy those periods, our lives would suck? What is so compelling about these movies where no one fucks no one swears. It's not no, boob sight. There's not a, nary a tit in the land. And it, like the worst thing you can do is get in a carriage with like a man. One of the first things we mm-hmm. talked about uh, is how they look, like the aesthetics oh. of them, because they look beautiful. They do. Oh, man. Yeah. But that's one of those thoughts where like when we were talking about this earlier and you were like, why do we like period dramas I was like they look gorgeous and then I slept on it and I was like why do I think it looks gorgeous I have so many problems with the fact that I think this looks gorgeous there is such a heightened femininity to a lot of them yes. uh, in a way that I think indulges for me all those princess fantasies I had when I was younger lots of nice dresses beautiful estates so I love to look at like a palatial estate mm-hmm. it's very soothing to me very aspirational I guess to a certain part of me but it also makes me full of rage to see a rich person today so why don't i mind sympathizing with a rich person from 250 years ago because she has a bonnet like mm. yeah yeah exactly and uh, the, the other thing that comes up with aesthetics is these beautiful frothy dresses were incredibly uncomfortable mm-hmm. uh, and as a woman and dirty yeah and as a, as a woman i should be feeling sort of like this a- empathetic pain but instead i feel aesthetic pleasure when mm-hmm. i when i look at a, a woman wearing that yeah so that's but the, that nevertheless is part of it like the appeal of period dramas is, is that they look beautiful um i think though part of the appeal is that the people in them are unrealistically beautiful oh yeah like none of the women nothing. have a weird mustache that there are no tit hairs poking out of the top of those low-cut dresses mm-hmm. it's almost like everyone is wearing modern makeup in the 18th century imagine that when ma- makeup in the 18th century would kill you <laughs> everybody smelled really weird all of the time i can only imagine not that that would come across on screen but you could feel it <laughs> <laughs> you could see it yeah be like linus you from charlie see- brown <laughs> You can Lines. see it when someone is stinky. Odor. <laughs> uh, I, we also, one of the things I like about period dramas is also what I like about rom-coms is that you kind of know what beats they're going to hit. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a very comforting genre to return to because it's completely predictable. I also think that internal to that world, to their world, is a set, a coded set of rules uh, that people are meant to follow, right? Gentlemanly conduct, gentlewomanly conduct. Uh, and I think to get like a little more ideological about what we're talking about, about, that there's something that appeals to women in that in the sense that it is a world that they can that we can understand where women uh, know their place they know how to move within that world properly and in a weird 
fucked up way, it's like, yeah, there's a patriarchy and women are totally controlled, but they know that and that's kind of like the deal that they're in. It's like the weird contract that they signed. That is not good. But at the same time, there is this like perverse comfort in that. Well, I know what I'm getting into. Not comfort, but maybe relief at having it laying so Mm -hmm. bare. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, I think there's the sense that there are maybe fewer trapdoors, kind of, like in terms of social expectations because they're really explicit. Such clear rules about where you can sit and with whom you can sit and who can ask you to dance and what dances you can do with them. And I think it's as restricted as life continues to be for women in many ways. But the restrictions are explicit. They also lead to a kind of wish fulfillment formula Mm -hmm. about do these things and you will have a happy ending. When I was thinking about this, I found that overall, these movies are very faithful up to the system in a sense. Like yes, they believe they're conservative. Like, yeah, they're very conservative. Like play by the rules and you will be rewarded. But there were moments where I felt like that system was challenged and those moments were not always in the movies I thought. But the third thing I want to point out about why, why women like these or why I like these is the sexual aspect. And, and actually, really, it's a non-sexual aspect because it is all foreplay. It is yes. all about it's glorious. getting the tension going. Six hours of getting hot and bothered in the case of the 1995 Pride and Prejudice that culminates with one kiss. One kiss. You know what I'm just realizing mm. is really nice about that? What is sexy is getting to know somebody. Yes, exactly. And what Thanks, is sexy Mom. is when... No, no, no. <laughs> Wait. What is sexy is getting a very rich man to like you and give you his money as well. But it's true. That it's, is sexy. It's a very it's Sugar Daddy's hit us up. Sugarbabies <laughs> at gmail.com. So this is almost like a choose your own viewing experience. Mm-hmm. You can go into this and get a couple different things out of the period drama, which is maybe another reason why um, it's unfairly maligned as a simple genre, as like only about titillating women. And I would even also say that the kind of titillation that it provides to sort of loop back into what we were talking about before <laughs> is is in itself like very complex. That it is a very feminine form of desire mm-hmm. um, that is a that is as far away from penetration as possible. Yes. It is all about delay, anticipation, foreplay, and all that foreplay is mental, emotional. Mm-hmm. Get like as you said, getting to know someone. Yeah, yeah. I don't like that. I sort of implied that titillating mm. a woman is a simple or dumb thing. It fully isn't. And uh, one of the things that maybe makes this an exceptional form of entertainment is that it doesn't oversimplify that. Um, Mm -hmm. Falling in love is the bread and butter of these stories. And these stories are showing just how vexed that is. Yes. Just how... Mm-hmm. They take hours to unfold. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it turns out that erotic stimulation is folded into a ton of other issues. So if you're getting hot and bothered, you're also thinking about class, gender, race, money. There's a ton of things going on. As, as we definitely will get into. And yeah. then the last thing, and this ties, I think, a lot into what we were, have just been saying, is we go to these films for escapism sometimes. Mm-hmm. We go to see a simplified world, often exclusively a world of white people who yeah. are landed gentry. These films present a fantasy to us that is geared to our whiteness. And yet, uh, I, I think one of the main goals of, our, of this podcast and one of its main challenges is the, the way that we want to kind of like pry apart the white supremacy of a lot of these films that make it mm-hmm. seem like whiteness is the only thing. Because yeah. there are a lot of ways that race and class seep into even the most conservative of these of these films and these works. When we're talking about a Jane Austen novel or an adaptation of Jane Austen novel, there's a lot of studies that have been done about the way that colonialism yeah. and the wealth that a lot of these landed gentry took from colonial properties actually fed into their estates in England that were allowing them to make all these advantageous matches, et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. there, is, there is a way and there has to be a way to talk about these forces and these vectors, but it's often very subconscious in these films. In academia, one of the ways um, we can talk about this is called reading for the silences. Mm Because usually those are really fruitful areas to, you know, go digging. Mm Mm-hmm. In true period drama fashion, we're going to look primarily at different proposal scenes in Mm -hmm. three films. And I think that looking at proposal scenes is so perfect because A, it encapsulates all that feminine romance Mm -hmm. angle of it. And yet it also is a microcosm for all of these other forces.
Hmm. So we're going to start off by talking about the Mac Daddy of period dramas. <laughs> Drum roll, please. The Colin Firth jumping out of a lake, <laughs> dripping with duckweed. Into weed. a lake. <laughs> Both. He's got to get out of it. How do you think he got out? I am speaking, of course, of the 1995 BBC miniseries Pride and Prejudice, which inspired Darcy Mania. Uh, and we talked about Rightly, this rightfully earlier. So. Has inspired a truly hilarious deep corner of the internet where women are sexually fixated on Colin Firth as this character, including pages and pages of message boards dedicated to figuring out which side of his pants he places his penis on in a key I, writing scene. And I, they were successful in their inquiry. We have an answer. <laughs> DM us if you want it. <laughs> it's clickbait. <laughs> If you've been living under a rock and you don't know what happens in Pride and Prejudice, here is the TLDR. The Bennets are like lower middle class. They have some money, but not very much money. But the real problem is Mr. and Mrs. Bennett have five daughters, which means that they have no son to inherit their estate. It's going to be entailed away to the closest male relative, who is a very odious man named Mr. Collins. Of the five daughters... The two eldest are clearly like the winners here. There's Jane, who is extremely sweet and a little bit dumb, but very beautiful. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth, who is like beautiful and witty and very opinionated and sharp. The three younger <laughs> daughters are varying degrees of idiocy. Um, there's Mary, the philosoph the, the philosophy bro of the Bennett family. <laughs> there's Kitty, who just follows the youngest around, Lydia, who is really just like the shit disturber par excellence. I, the main point is that... The Bennets are in need of money. Yeah. And their two most eligible daughters end up making advantageous, advantageous matches. So it starts off with Elizabeth, the protagonist, meeting a man named Fitzwilliam Darcy. They have a really bad first encounter. And he is smitten with her pretty quickly. But she continues to think he's a stuck-up dick, which he is. It's the original I hate you, then I love you trope. So let's get into its proposal scene a bit. Well, there's two. There are three. Actually, there's three. There are three, technically, yes. Mm -hmm. There's Mr. Darcy's first proposal, there's Mr. Collins's proposal, and there's Mr. Darcy's second proposal. And the three of them together kind of show almost like different potential futures for Elizabeth Bennet, the main character. Right. And Mr. Mm -hmm. Darcy is like the dream man. He's the dream yes. boat. He's super rich. Yep. Uh, even though he's snobby at the beginning, he ends up becoming a changed man and he mm -hmm. considers his actions. More yeah. intellectually, he's lickable. Mm -hmm. Lickable? Yeah, he's a lickable man. <laughs> <laughs> so Mr. Darcy proposes to Elizabeth, who the first time, she is below him in class and he does so in a really shitty way. Like he kind of insults her and clearly is like, Ugh, I'm so like, Vajmatized? How about vajazzled? Vajazzled. Oh my god. I'm so vajazzled by you that I, don't I will... Know. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so he proposes to her the first time in a really shitty way. Like, he's pretty much like, I can't get over this boner I have for you, so I guess we can get married. And justifiably, she's like, you're being a dick. I'm not gonna marry you. Get out of here. And that, we learn later, becomes a turning point for the character of Mr. Darcy. What and... she, what she, and I think this is important, what mm -hmm. she specifically says to him is that Basically, you've spared me um, being polite and turning you down. And I might have been more polite had you behaved in a more gentleman-like manner. Mm -hmm. And that's a real key word for Pride and Prejudice, gentleman-like. For all of these films, For all I of think. them, you're right. What is a gentleman? Yeah. And so after this proposal, he kind of goes off and genuinely becomes a kinder, better person. So that's the first and the second Mr. Darcy proposal. The second one... He proposes, it's cute, they get together, it's wonderful. Even, it's almost, I mean, he does, what he says is, oh, let me see if I can get this right. He, he says, like, my feelings and wishes are unchanged. Unchanged. Yes. What do you feel like? Yeah, it's, so it's very like him being like, here I am, do you want this, yes or no? Yes. So Darcy has saved Lizzie's family from, like, social and financial ruin. And the important thing about this is that he does not bring this up at the proposal as a bargaining chip. Because, you know, if you truly love someone, you don't hold shit over on them. Yeah, and she, in turn, has also improved by knowing him. Yeah, and I think the real romance between Lizzie and Darcy is that they both don't change for one another, but because of one another. Yes. And that's, like, the you get swept up in it. But in addition to Darcy's two proposals, there's a third proposal that Lizzie gets that I think is also important. And it's, yes. a, it's the first proposal it's she gets. It's the first one, yeah. And it is her hilariously odious cousin, Mr. Collins. 
Mr. Collins, the man on which the estate is to be entailed upon, uh, feels that it is, is his duty to marry a Bennett sister. Collins, when he comes to the house, is got his eye on Jane. But Jane and, and Mr. Bingley, who's a friend of Mr. Darcy's, are kind of getting it on. So Mrs. Bennett politely tells Mr. Collins to go to Lizzie, mm -hmm. which is important because this is not a passionate proposal. When he proposes to Lizzie, um, he does it in a way that slightly mirrors Mr. Darcy's abortive proposal. Mm -hmm. He basically comes in and says, my feelings for you are so strong. But the way that yeah. he does it is very calculated. Mm -hmm. Very, It's obviously a lie. And yeah. I think that we as viewers are supposed to criticize him mm -hmm. for this kind of falseness. Yeah. Um, and he is also, he's a character who cannot read social cues. Mm -hmm. And so he proposes to Lizzie, she rejects him, and his first thought is, oh, well, I know that's what elegant women do, so that's okay. I, I get that you're just rejecting me as a matter of principle, mm -hmm. but I'll ask again and it'll be fine. And right. she has to be like, no. She has to really pull like the 18th century no means no on him. Yes, she does. Also, we know that his like, my heart overflows, my loins palpitate only for you is bullshit because he rolls into the house and he's mm. like, Jane is the hottest, is she available? I think a really great unsaid thing in that scene is that Mr. Collins is not sexy. Yeah. Like Lizzie is not attracted to yes. him. And that's not made text in the scene. But I think considering how important desire is throughout all of these movies, it matters that she looks at him and she doesn't want to fuck him. Mm -hmm, like yeah. that is really important in the context of the story. Yes. And so when Mr. Darcy has his first proposal, you get these little pickups from Collins. Mm -hmm. He also says, uh, as Mr. Collins does, almost from the earliest moments of our acquaintance. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Collins says something very similar, like um, almost from the moment I entered the mm -hmm. house. Yeah. But we are... Although that proposal is horrible and he is incredibly rude, mm -hmm. we are, I think, meant to take his slip-ups and uh, we are meant, he's meant to come out better in that comparison. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think because we are meant to see that Darcy has genuine feeling for Elizabeth if poorly expressed and also poorly understood by himself. Mm -hmm. um, and this is part of how the movie sort of tries to reconcile having a lot of money with um, having moral values that middle-class viewers can recognize and understand and sympathize with. Mm -hmm. Because marrying for money was just part of an aristocratic woman's life, and a lot of them handled it in ways that are very unlike Lizzie Bennet. Mm -hmm. We're turning down a man who would actually like increase your family's wealth and standing. You would never do that. And this leads into some of the class relations of of the miniseries, of, mm -hmm. of the novel itself as well, in this incredulity about how Lizzie could possibly turn down Darcy. Because this is happening at a time in England where the merchant class is becoming more powerful, mm -hmm. they have more ability to move within the upper echelons of society, and they're making more marriages in the aristocracy. Mm -hmm. Conversely, the aristocracy is actually running out of money, or running out of, um, some of them are running out of like fluid money. They have a lot of land, mm -hmm. um, but they don't necessarily, ha necessarily have a lot of cash. And we see this, uh, the Bingleys, uh, who are well, friends of Darcy's are were it's noted that they were from merchant class mm -hmm. and that they are now incredibly rich not mm -hmm. as rich as Dar Darcy but richer well, than everyone also else not mean. aristocracy right yeah. like he's Mr. Darcy not, not Lord Darcy or, or Sir anything. Darcy yeah he has an aunt who is a lady so the Bennets themselves are landed gentry but they are poor Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of different levels going on. You mm -hmm. have new money who are gaining power but don't have prestige. Mm -hmm. You have older money like Mr. Darcy. He's a bigger house. He has more prestige. And then you have people like the Bennets who are possibly older money but have no money anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things I like about the way class is negotiated in Pride and Prejudice, and there are a lot of things to not like, but one of the things I do like is I feel like often class is negotiated in terms of very block, like kind of blocks. Upper class, middle class, lower class. Which box do you check? And Pride and Prejudice is interested in tiny differences within a class. It's not yeah. just, are you upper or lower? It's like, okay, but within this middle class-ish in, um, in England, where do you fall? And what are the tiny intricacies of class yeah. that impact how you interact with other people? One of the reasons why there's this complexity is because England is shifting from a system of naturalized rank 
where like truly the amount of money you own is is received as god-given mm. like unproblematic and it is moving into the more antagonistic system of class mm-hmm. so we're like having these ranks rubbing up against each other and that causes a lot of anxiety because yeah, it does. Be- before this happens almost all of these people are white so this yeah. is all about this is all like in an umbrella of white supremacy mm-hmm. you have rich landed gentry whose worth is tied to their wealth mm-hmm. and to their class that you are good and worthy because you are rich yeah. and white. And Pride and Prejudice is, is really in navigating through these different shifting class movements. What it's asking is, how worthy is a rich person? Mm-hmm. Um, that it's, it's sort of splitting apart these, these two categories. That yeah. Darcy can be snobbish and arrogant, even though he is the richest person that we see in the novel, besides Cap- his aunt, Catherine de Bourgh. And likewise, the Bennets we get a whole range. Even though yeah. they, the Bennets, obviously, as the same family, are of the same class, all the daughters have their their own flaws uh, and their own worthiness, and mm-hmm. they're all of varying degrees of worthiness. And so we're getting sort of like a working through of these splittings of that mm-hmm. wealth-worth equation. And I love that in this kind of like complicated shift, I like that the protagonist... Lizzie Bennet is someone who has this really clear sense of her own self-worth. I think sort of wrapped up in these conversations is what do these films value? Obviously the heroines of these films are meant to be the audience's entry point Mm -hmm. into them. I mean as seen by the fact that every single white girl that reads Pride and Prejudice is like, you know, I just feel like I'm Lizzie Bennet. Yeah. I am guilty of this too. <laughs> well, we all are. Yes. She is, she's everyone. Yeah. And when I think about what is Pride and Prejudice valuing in its heroine, and I think this actually ends up crossing over into many, many period pieces, it is a woman who can both read the social um, contexts, understands the social rules that she's meant to follow, and yet has enough mastery over them to be to bend them and to be flexible within them and to be her own individual. Yeah. And this is what really distinguishes Elizabeth from Lydia, the younger sister who's quite flighty. Because Elizabeth can also be a little improper. Mm-hmm. She laughs a lot. She's mm-hmm. very... And laughing is coded as like a sexual sort of thing oh, to yes. do for a lady. The difference between Lydia and Lizzie is that the way Lydia lives is unsustainable in society, unfortunately. So that conservative impulse in it is really seen in the happy ending with Darcy. Yeah. That, oh, after all, after all this, even though there's lots of questioning about, about Darcy's worth, we and he is ultimately the ideal man in the movie. And he's rich, and he's the best master, and that's who she ends up with. Mm-hmm. I think it says something about the movie's relationship to the system and rules permits a certain amount of bending the rules but not breaking them mm-hmm. yes. so lizzie bends them in doing things by like by laughing superficial things but also by turning down darcy and collins at yes. first that's kind of bending what's expected yes. of her that's almost breaking on. almost yes. yeah it's pushing them to the point where you're like oh they're not technically broken but we close <laughs> um i think pride and prejudice is a vision of working from within the system to get a better outcome yes. yeah and for it's a vision of how one person has you know aligned themselves with this system because that's about all Lizzie honestly has like the energy mm-hmm. and yeah. ability to do there are gestures towards how wrong this system is for sure but there's the only solution put forth is do the best you can for yourself and yeah. Uh, yeah hopefully you can pull up your family and friends a little baby bit through the wealth you've acquired but mm-hmm. and it's worth mentioning that for Jane Austen this novel suffered maybe from its complicity which she called lightness and brightness Lightness because, and brightness. Because the novel ends so happily for everyone who deserves happiness. It's a double wedding. But basically, Austen said that this novel was a little too light, bright, and sparkling for her personal taste, and it needed a hint of darkness. And we get these hints of darkness in the next one movies we're going to discuss. Yes. For sure.
So now we want to turn our attention to North and South, the miniseries with Richard Armitage Ugh. and Daniela Denby-Ash. North and South is really similar to Pride and Prejudice. It, it has a, we hate each other, oh, we love each other plot. But where Pride and Prejudice is kind of confined to all the ranks and gradations within the gentry, North and South is set in industrial England. And its cast of characters includes not just Thornton, our mill owner risen up from being um, a worker to a master male lead, and Margaret Hale, who's from the country and is like a demure young lass, a clergyman's daughter, not like super wealthy, but pretty stable. The cast also includes several working class people. Mm -hmm. We have a worker named Nicholas Higgins and his daughter Bessie, who has been working in cotton mills since she was a child. We have Mrs. Thornton. Thornton's mother. We get a mother-son relationship. That's kind of new to the genre. A um, weird one, too. Yeah, it's honestly... It's very Oedipal. It's charged. Really, it's the insertion of the working classes into the period drama romantic comedy formula that makes this most noteworthy, I think. Yeah. yeah. There is a proposal scene. There's two. We actually get four. Ooh. We get one right at the beginning from Mr. Lennox. A true. I that Margaret about that one. gently lets him down on. We get two from Thornton and we get one in the middle from a man named Mr. A proposal from Mr. Bell. Mr. Mr. Bell, Bell proposes. And I have to say, I give him major points for this. He's like, I mean, think about it. And she lets him down and he's totally cool with yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> but we're going to be focusing on the two Thornton proposals, of obviously. I mean, Richard Armitage is a snack. But he he's a meal, honey. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I kind of think he looks like a sexy ferret. Like, I don't know if I'm all the way there with it. I'm fine with it. I'm fine with that. His nose is like it's so attractive. Um, right. So the first proposal, I find when I watch this proposal that it is it mirrors the 1995 Pride and Prejudice first Darcy proposal so closely. Yeah. So Thornton comes in. There's even a, he's in a room alone with her. He's a bit agitated. He kind of moves around moves the room around. a lot. He goes by a mantelpiece and it's quite antagonistic. Mm -hmm. That is kind of where I find it ends because it, I find this quite a messy proposal. And I mean, we'll get into, I think, what are a lot of the like ideological concerns behind but it. But also, but for right says, now, it straight up makes no sense. It makes no sense. At one point, he's like, once we talk of the color of fruit, now we talk of love. And I was just like, what oh, are we I talking about, line. man? Like, why did like, you add it in? In the Pride and Prejudice first proposal scene, Darcy and Elizabeth's interactions make perfect sense for who they are at that time. Whereas with Thornton, this shit comes out of nowhere. But the upshot that they're trying to get at is that when he proposes, she A, doesn't like him, so that makes her see it all wrong. B, she feels that he is the master of this cotton factory, has been cruel to his Some workers. Mill. Sorry, Mill. Mm -hmm. um, has been cruel to his workers. Um, she's friends with some of those workers. And she is very suspect of him at first as this capitalist force. Yeah, she has that awful line at the end of the first episode. I've seen hell and it's white. Snow white! And then there's like swelling music while tufts of cotton, cotton balls like oh my float God. through the air. You guys are hating on actually, North and South. Hate so I actually love that line, gotta say. Yeah, that line is dope and the music swelling music, works oh, beautifully. The soundtrack for this I film I love that it has awesome. no time for capitalist England. It's like, I am it's the only one who correctly show. watched this movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's the, her main problem. There's a second problem where just sort of scenes before this, the workers have been on strike and she they've come angry at Thornton's house and she has gone out and sort of rushed out and basically jumped in front of him to save him from danger, which he takes as a declaration of love. Mm -hmm. So when he comes to propose, she also gets very agitated and upset because she feels like he's only proposing to save her reputation. So another interesting thing to bring up, I think, while we're talking about the many ways in which North and South mirrors Pride and Prejudice is an important way in which it is very different, which is the aesthetic of the movie. Pride and Prejudice really does look like an Instagram filter, whereas North and South is like 2002 MySpace. Like, it's like a Zack Snyder film. Up oh, yeah. It's like some earth tones and not like the cute ones. Mm -hmm. Everyone looks a little bit ill all of the time. Industrial England, people. <laughs> yeah, like it's a really Doesn't hold back. gray tone. And so the first proposal between Darcy and Lizzie in Pride and Prejudice happens in this like warm toned, pale, like flatteringly lit small room mm -hmm. that is like an attractive room. Whereas the first proposal in North and South happens in this like dank gray 
gray room that looks damp. Do you like it looks damp on screen? You look at I feel like I look at it and I'm like everyone is a little clammy here. I mean, there's a reason the so many people die in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the final thing I just want to note in terms of the concerns of the film is when Margaret responds negatively to his proposal, Thornton gets extremely upset, not only because his feelings are hurt, but because he feels like she doesn't think he is a gentleman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That because he is in trade, that he only buys and sells people, and that he can't have genuine emotions. I kind of have to like pause and give Margaret some some props, even though she does misinterpret things in ways that infuriate me in the scene. I do kind of love that she's just seen Thornton hire um, scabs to work at his mill when his workers, who have every reason to strike, are on strike. She's seen him do this. They're trying to form a union. They're trying to form a union. He's not there for it. None of the mill work mill masters are. Margaret has seen him do this, and she has decided that his participation in like exploitative work practices does color his his character. And I have to give her props for that, right? And this is something that I think the movie has these intentions of exploring these class relations and particularly what life is like for the working class. For example, Bessie dies quite young because of a bronchi- bronchial infection. The cotton, yeah, I guess that's what it is. She's the cotton con- gets in their lungs. She's some kind of condition in her lungs from working in the mill, and she dies. Yeah, she's made into a mini mill. Like, the mill infects her, and she dies mm-hmm. because of the mill. And another lower-class character commits suicide because he can't support his family during the strike, and he's drowned in this, he drowns himself in this um, particular stream that has runoff dye. So when they take his body out, it's all purple. Mm-hmm. So purple. like labor is is making its way into it's the bodies their of bodies. its workers. And this is where I have issues with it. On the surface, you're like, oh, it's, pri- it's class conscious pride and prejudice. And seeing these working class characters feels very refreshing. Mm-hmm. But then you get to a scene like the proposal where you have Thornton worried about uh, being a gentleman. And yet the movie the movie uses that to kind of wedge them apart in that scene, but ultimately the movie thinks he is a gentleman. Mm-hmm. I but, actually think that this is the most conservative of the three. Yes. Even though I think it claims to be the most revolutionary. Radical. Radical, that's the word. But I think ultimately North and South is the most conservative of right, the three we because, watched. Because, so he's worried about this gentleman-like behavior, but ultimately why she gets together with him in the end or what we are supposed to feel like when she gets together in the end is that he is a good master. Yeah. That he, it's shown throughout that he's quite prudent with his money. He doesn't want his payroll to go bad. He is in favor of um, a wheel that will help get rid of some of the cotton fibers. And all sort of all these notes that sort of make him seem like responsible and um, in control and even in some ways benevolent. But when it comes to this union, which is really like the center, the center, central crisis mm-hmm. of the film, he is against it. And we're supposed to kind of forgive him for it in a way. Yeah. So what happens in the end is that the union does not successfully get formed. Mm-hmm. And instead, Thornton agrees to kind of provide independent social services. It's yes. really not clear it's what it is. It's almost like it's somewhere between a welfare state and a company store system. Mm-hmm. Right. He agrees to like have like a soup kitchen on site. He partners up with one of the working class characters, Nicholas Higgins, and they talk man to man, which is like this movie's wet dream. But I have to give Gaskell points for exploring these Gaskell problems. is the person who wrote the novel. Elizabeth Gaskell wrote the novel North and South upon which the miniseries is based. Gaskell's really working through some huge problems and giving the working classes a voice before Capital's published. Mm-hmm. So she's trying mm-hmm. to figure out some pretty big stuff. And I, I don't think she does it right. I think she's definitely going to be on our complicit hit list. But <laughs> yeah. So what happens in the end um, after the soup kitchen is I think it's worth noting that Nicholas Higgins, who agrees to organize this kind of like in-house social service with Thornton, was the leader of the, the union strike. uprising, yeah. like people trying to form a union, is that that's it. Then he, Thornton and Margaret get together, the movie ends. I just think that this movie ultimately starts by suggesting social change but ends up re-reifying the vision of like a good master being Mm -hmm. a better solution than like a widespread upheaval. 
It's this individualist, individual benevolence. Yeah, it's it is not about state responsibility. It is about person to person being responsible for the people that are around them. And in the end, the union is seen is really seen as either futile or or negative or pernicious yeah. in some way. Pernicious to, is a to good the word. lives yeah. of of the workers, as opposed to something that that should be pursued. Yeah, that is like a positive change. I wonder if this is maybe representing how complex and difficult it would be to have a union in industrial England, one of the first unions, would only ever be messy and full of these mistakes that you maybe wouldn't make if it was round two. Mm. It's not that I think that the movie shouldn't have been like, yay, unions, revise history. Mm. Thornton is actually a secret, actual Marxist. <laughs> he rips open his shirt and there's a hammer and sickle tattooed on his chest. It's that the movie, which came out not that long ago, mm-hmm. asks us to accept this as total justification for him as a romantic lead. And I think mm-hmm. that and there's is... there's no complication there. The story encourages us to think about this stuff, but it really doesn't have a clear way out for its problems about yeah, and it Beyond like, team up with who's got the money. Yeah, Make sure you get a job in the good mill. Let's talk about the last proposal. So yeah. the first proposal takes place in a room, quite a cramped, ugly room. The last proposal takes place at a train station. A, a liminal space. A liminal space, the poorest space. We've all been in grad school, so we say liminal all the time. <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing about this proposal is that Thornton is ruined. He is, he has just gone to Margaret's childhood home and he has a rose from where it was. How romantic. It's a super weird scene. Yeah, it's really weird also. <laughs> Margaret is... A strange scene. On a train. Her parents have both died. Her brother's back in Spain. She's totally alone, but she's, she's independently wealthy a now. a nice amount of money from Mr. Bell. Mr. Bell is the true hero of this story. <laughs> the other, I guess, important detail about her independent wealth is that it, along with that wealth, she also now is the landlord of Thornton's Mill. So Thornton goes to Helston. She's been up north in Milton uh, looking for him specifically, yeah. only to find that the mill is closed uh, and Thornton is, is not there. So as Thornton is going back to Milton on one train, Margaret is going the other way and mm-hmm. they end up seeing each other, just happening to see each other on, there on the platform. There are seven people that live in England at this time. <laughs> then um, Margaret proposes to reinvest in the mill, to reopen it. And uh, Milton, or Thornton, does a great job of sort of not hearing her words. Oh. <laughs> and he ends up holding her hand. And this is supposed to be a contrast to a scene in the novel when he puts out his hand for her to shake and she rejects him. So now they're holding hands and they're basically going to be business partners and life partners. And then she kisses his because hand. Because they kiss in pop. She kisses his hand and then they kiss with their lips. And yeah. then, and then, I'm getting this the vapors. <laughs> She's so angry about this. Yeah, this is, is this bugaboo? <laughs> is that the phrase? Uh, it's more than that. Pet peeve. So yes, like, they, this kiss, is... they kiss on the platform. Oh, and small detail, Henry Lennox, Margaret's friend, Henry Lennox is also just like chilling. Awkwardly there. Being over like cool. In hey. another train car. You uh, can see all of this. The yeah. worst viewer stand-in. <laughs> so they kiss on the on the platform and then Margaret gets into Thornton's train car. Private train car. With him and takes her bags and goes. And, and then, then they, they make out the, a lot. The rail high club. His cravat is loose. First of all, I just don't like this scene because I just, no one in this time period would act that way. I find it extremely historically inaccurate. <laughs> like, it's just like you, again, like women are very concerned about what is going to ruin them, what is proper. And certainly kissing a man in the middle of a train station in front of your friend. And when then, previously you considered it improper to shake his hand. Yes. Yeah. And then getting into his train car? I think the reason it's so frustrating is because of... The, one of the reasons we said earlier that we actually enjoy the movies, which is watching people navigate strict social rules. Mm-hmm. But the, this second proposal and how she responds is suddenly like, just kidding, you never had to follow the right. rules. And this is, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Yes. The previous three hours you just spent watching this on your couch didn't have to happen. That's exactly <laughs> it. Like it's, not, it's not to like slut shame her in any way. It's more that it pulls the rug out from under yeah. all of these constructs. It's like a, the M. Night Shyamalan twist of <laughs> that movie right okay we could have been making out the whole time right where you're just like but i was in 
invested in watching how the characters navigate the system you promised me was here. And then like in Children of right. the Corn or whatever, suddenly you're like, what do you mean the system's not there? It's, it's this contemporary insur- insertion of like, ah, we know you want to see them fuck. And it's like... <laughs> But you don't see them fuck. That's no, important. You don't. I think I would have been happy with them holding hands. Yes. That would have been so sweet. Even just kissing? It yeah. Feels... I want to be behind this because she's his prince. He, she's his prince. Like, yes. She's rescuing yes. him from ruin. She's his Darcy. But it just falls flat because well, he's not fucking listening. Exactly. Yeah, it the movie feels unearned. The movie doesn't let her actually save him in a way, right? Yeah. It pretends to, but there's never a moment of gratitude from him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or even understanding. And come where it does when she's she's giving this business proposal forcefully feminizes the situation Mm -hmm. and diffuses it diffuses her power i have a theory possibly here all right which is we've been talking a lot about this paradox of how do you reconcile the film's interest in working class life with thornton with thornton as a romantic partner yeah and there's a way that this ending really cleaves him, it from the rest of the story. Yeah, it is also like Helston is sun wa- a wash in sun, and it's dreamlike. Again, these characters aren't acting like characters. They're not. They're not really talking to each other. It's so overdetermined with sexual charge that even though she's talking about his mill and about manufacturing and mm-hmm. this work, that it, it doesn't touch it. Yeah, I mean, like I guess the train station is supposed to show compromise. Mm-hmm. It's in between the north yeah. and the south that has characterized mm-hmm. the whole story. But I feel the same way that you do. By having it, the proposal, such a crucial part of any period drama, happen in a place so disconnected from the rest of the story, in a way that I understand what Lizzie and Darcy's life will be like, mm-hmm. I truly don't know. Yeah. Like, it's, yes. like it ends and I'm kind of like, well. I truly think it's this escape hatch from the problems, the working class problems that the rest of the series is mired in. And maybe that's actually something interesting to think about how maybe there's something to the fact that there isn't an easy resolution for the two of them. Mm -hmm. It doesn't exist. And escape to like this kind of fantastical green world is the only space where Thornton and Margaret can come together. Our third film, third and final film for this episode is the 2013 film Belle. Uh, directed by Ama Asante. And it is, unlike the first two we did, it is not an adaptation of a novel. It's based off of the life of Dido Elizabeth Bell, a mixed race woman who was uh, educated in England and lived a quite luxurious life as part of the aristocracy. Her uncle was the chief Lord Justice of England at the time. So Bell has all the privileges of someone like the upper class woman that we've seen in Pride and Prejudice, and yet she is black. So what does that do to her privilege? Belle comes to live in the aristocracy because her father, a white British sailor, has what the movie claims is a love relationship with her mother who is a black slave. And after her mother dies, her father comes and rescues her from a slave ship, right? And takes her to live with some family members, the Chief Lord Justice and his wife. Belle is thus the child of a rich white British sailor and a black slave mother, which puts her in a very complicated position. For example, example, even though Belle is superficially treated with all the privileges of her white companion sister, they're treated as sisters, cousin, but they're treated as sisters in this movie. Belle does not eat with the family when there's company over. Formal company. She eats in a separate room, not with the servants, but also not with the family. So So she, talking about liminal spaces, exists in a liminal space. Belle is like a real categorical problem for the British at in the 18th century because if you're an aristocrat how could you be mixed race this again goes back to the triad of class whiteness and worth and this is also all set in the backdrop of the late 18th century where conversations about race and slavery and And freedom and abolition were in the air in fact her uncle presided over multiple high profile cases about slavery so Belle grows up in this very anxiety ridden world about what her place is. Her family are quite unsure what to do with her. Again, they don't let her eat in formal company, but they they also love her and take her uh, on different outings and she is dressed in fine clothing, but they also do not believe she can 
can make a good match. She, they believe that if she were to marry, anyone of her own class would not want her, and anyone who would want her would be too lowborn for her to make a match that was that was worthy of her. It's also worth pointing out that in the movie, Belle is an heiress, and she has ten thousand pounds. Yeah. So she should be a guy magnet, but because of the way that race operates, um, she has only two real suitors in the movie's plot. Um, mm-hmm. She has an Ashford brother, played by quite a yummy actor, to be honest, and he pursues her, thinking that her race makes her kind of exotic and mm-hmm. sexual, which is a problem, obviously. And but his that brother is extremely, like, virulently racist. Bigoted. Tom Felton just playing Draco Malfoy. Yeah, Draco Malfoy. <laughs> 18th, 18th century Draco Malfoy. Yeah. Draco Malfoy in a pompadour hat. Yes, whereas Oliver, there's a scene in the film when Oliver Ashford is courting Belle, where he basically says that he can forgive her black lineage. Her the, the better half. Yes. Yeah. He talks, she because her better half, i.e. her white half, is is good enough. In contrast, the second suitor that Belle has Davinier. John Davinier. Handsome, although truly sexually undercut by a heinous wig. That he never yeah. takes off. Yeah, it's bad. It, it looks so bad. So John Davinier is a young lawyer who is basically articling with Belle's uncle, and he fully believes that uh, black people and white people people should be equal, that it is a it is a horror that people are being enslaved, uh, and he, it is heavily implied and sometimes explicitly implied, loves Belle for who she is. He sees her, he doesn't even see her as these two sides. He sees her as a full person. I actually found him to be a little Mary Sue-ish. Like, mm-hmm. I was like, you are so good. You are too good. You yeah. are anachronistically good. Yeah. It reminded yes. me of oh, like... No, 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 wait, no. Because I, I do think it's dangerous to be like, people didn't believe that slavery correct. was wrong. Correct. They did. We just don't hear about it a lot. And one of the nice things Bell does is be like, 1769, England, profiting off the slave trade like nobody's business. This is an epigraph that we start with and it occurred to me like, wow, I've never seen a period drama that just admits it from the outset. The problem I had with Divinier is this kind of desire to always have like a truly good white person Mm -hmm. is kind of pandering to the white Mm -hmm. viewer because it gives you a point of identification. It it alleviates your sense of complicity. Yeah. This movie has, also has Two Three pro- proposals. Three? Two? How Three. Many? Oliver Ashford proposes to her. Yeah. And Davinier kind of twice. Yeah. I think it's actually two because the Daviniers are both 0.5. Yeah. This is a good point that we will get into. So in the first proposal, Oliver Ashford, who is the younger son of the Ashford family and thus has no fortune to his name, comes to Belle, who again is an heiress, and proposes to her. And she, acting the pragmatist, initially says yes to his proposal. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think this is something that shows the difference between something like Pride and Prejudice, which is quite fantastical in terms of how these women would have reacted. That that Belle thinks, yes, okay, yeah, I am am friggin' rich, but I am black, and I, uh, my only other option, if I don't take this proposal, as her, as her, again, her wardens have in mind for her, is to become like the housekeeper, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To be the resident spinster at yes. this enormous house. And yeah. so she says yes. Well, I actually noticed in an interesting parallel, and I think that three movies we chose actually really speak to each other in interesting ways. That first proposal between Ashford and Bell mirrors the proposal between Collins and Lizzie pretty clearly. Yes. Like he's fidgety, he's nervous. Um, he kind of recites reasons in the same way that Collins does. There I mean, are even like family members over overhearing outside the door. Yeah. Uh, and so it echoes it in that way. And yet Belle accepts, obviously, for practical reasons. Um, he's also not repulsive. No, he's he's kind of cute. They cast a really hot actor. Yeah. As an aside, my one, it's not a criticism. It's more of a note because I, I think this movie has a lot to do. Uh, and it, it usually is pretty efficient about it. But Belle is slightly overdetermined by these other forces. That we don't get a whole lot about who she actually is as a character. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that we do get is that she's quite proper. Uh, when she, we, she first meets Davinier, it's like at night and he comes in sort of unannounced. And she, she turns around from him sharply, so her back is towards him, and basically says like, we have not been introduced, you cannot do this. Mm-hmm. And this is, of course, because she's living in a world where she's told what she can and can't do. She can't eat formally 
So what she has to cling to is what it what is proper. She even has to like overact propriety. Yeah, she's I overcompensating. Yes. I also think it's self-protection. Belle is at all points at risk of being violated. Mm-hmm. And right. these social rules, as much as they constrain her, also offer her protection. Yes. Yes, I agree. And that, I think, is the heart of why she says yes to Oliver. It also shows that she has accepted her lot in life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, this is probably, she thinks, the best offer I will get. I have some thoughts about why she changes her mind. Mm-hmm. Because I think Belle changes her mind about Ashford not just because... She starts spending time with Davinier, which she does. She becomes covertly involved in a kind of legal proceeding that is a key. It was le- the Zong Massacre. The Zong Massacre, right, thanks. Which like- was a, basically, and it was a real historical event. It was a slave ship that through, in going through the Middle Passage, ended up realizing that the slaves were diseased or in other ways. They were ways- worth more insured than they were to be sold, so they drowned them. Yes, they killed them so that they could get uh, money from the insurance company. Right, and so this... This case rose through the court system in England up to kind of the English version of the Supreme Court at the time, which is Bell's uncle. And if he rules in favor of the sailors, then he's essentially upholding part of slavery. There would be nothing to stop other people from doing this. Right. If he rules in favor of the insurers who are saying, like, you drowned these people who didn't need to be drowned, it is a step towards the abolition of slavery. Bell becomes kind of wrapped up in trying to get her uncle to rule on the side of the insurers, which he eventually does. But that's part of why she ends up choosing Davinier and turning down Ashford. But another thing that happens, Belle, a lot of it is set in this country estate that is treated really as a green world. And green world that is fiercely protected by her aunt and uncle who do their best to make it a safe space for Belle. Mm-hmm. But the brother of the Ashford that proposes James. to her, James Ashford. so The is evil Ashford. Ashf- the bad Ashford. Draco Malfoy. Draco Malfoy <laughs> is extremely outwardly racist and at a garden party attacks Belle kind of behind a bush. And I think it's important that it happens in this green space mm-hmm. because... The you are ca- not safe. Anymore. Yeah. The character of Belle has thus far been taught that if you stay in safe spaces and follow certain rules you will be protected mm-hmm. and that and then the most extreme instance of overt racism we see her suffer happens in the greenest of green worlds mm-hmm. and it happens it she's attacked by the brother of the man she is set to marry and i think that is a huge influence in the kind of logic of the movie as to why she's like, I can't be part of that family. Mm-hmm. It also occurs to me that a lot of the courtship with Davinia takes place in cities or at night. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because I was struck by how much of this movie is filmed at night. Yeah. Which is just not something yes. you see in a period drama. It's very a true. Lot. Mm-hmm. You can't see the clothes as well. Yeah. Yeah. You need, and you need But really, to see I'm, those I'm serious. That's like... Right. And Belle is a lush movie. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. beautiful. It, it to me, it, what it's saying is that this black woman deserves as high a treatment uh, as any other historical piece. Although we'll talk about, I, I have misgivings about this. Yes, mm-hmm. I, I do. Which we will t- get to, yes. so we'll pause on that. <laughs> Davinier, when she's around him, she's often in a city setting and in, in the dark. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, A, is a world outside of her green world that, that he provides for her. And also there's a lack of propriety. Mm-hmm. She's finally sort of allowed to break free from these restrictions. And I also think that links to how like non-proposally both the declarations of love are that Davinier has. Yeah, should we talk about what actually happens? Yes. So yeah. in the first one, she's been dallying with Davinier, trying to give him information on the Zong massacre through her through stealing documents from her uncle, basically. Her uncle finds out, tracks her one day when she's in her carriage and when Davinier enters it is not Belle he sees it is the the uncle the the magistrate I'm forgetting right now she's there too and so Davinier walks into the carriage and has this extremely tense conversation with uh William Murray the magistrate and in the course of that conversation they get into a huge fighting match or screaming match and Davinier ends up yelling out I love her I love her Mm -hmm. and that's the declaration of love in this carriage scene we have his desire triangulated through this chief justice. Mm-hmm. He's actually, when he says, I love her, he's looking at the chief justice while she is beside him. He's not even looking at her. It's mm-hmm. not. It is something that is like so far beyond the bounds of like propriety, custom, the way things are done. Mm-hmm. It is a moment of transgression that yeah. he does this. Um, and the camera angles, when they're shooting Davinier, they don't include Belle in the shot. 
It just goes between his face and the Chief Justice's face. Mm-hmm. The scene is interesting in how it makes clear that marriage is really a transaction between two men. Mm-hmm. But the really transgressive part of this scene is that Divinier is of a markedly lower class than Lord Mansfield, the Chief Justice. So just there is no first proposal, really. No. We get the final, propo- heavily in quotation marks, proposal at the very end. It's after the courthouse ruling mm-hmm. that the Chief Lord Justice makes, where he does not rule in favor of the insurance. Again, he he does rule in favor of the insurers. Sorry, you're right. Where he does, I don't know how insurance works. Where he (laughs) does rule in favor of the insurers and it is a step towards abolition. And in his speech, he says a little thing about how abominable slavery is. Odious. Odious to the human spirit. This comes from a real ruling he passed, Mm -hmm. though on a separate case. Yes. Mm. So they're standing outside. Belle and Duvinier are standing outside the courthouse after this ruling, talking to the judge. And basically, she proposes to him, Mm -hmm. in fact. Kind of, yeah. She says that she loves him or something along those lines. She says to her uncle that she loves Duvinier. You're right. Again, it's triangulation. Mm -hmm. She says that she loves him to her uncle and then he sort of like tacitly gives his blessing by calling him a gentleman. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he looks at her and says like, could I be lucky as lucky for someone like you to love me. And then then, then it's done. But I want to talk a bit more about her position as a black woman in this kind of world. Should we talk about the changes between the real biography mm-hmm. and the movie? Because right. the yeah. movie goes to great lengths to isolate Belle's race. So she is beautiful. Mm-hmm. She is wealthy. She is educated. The only thing to differentiate Belle from the other people in her company is her skin color. She's That's even made it. superior to her cousin sister character, who in real life was the heiress, but in this Watch movie becomes sort of like a second son figure. She has all the status, but no money. The other problem with this approach isn't just that it's inaccurate, but that for a movie that wants us to consider how systems of oppression interlock, the movie really upholds class and luxury and money by making Belle wealthy when she wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yes. And also by making Devinier um, of a much higher stature than he was. He was a head steward, which means he was basically like the fanciest servant in a household. So why does a movie that thinks its message is that ennobling someone is a problem or needing to be ennobled is a problem, ennoble its two main characters. Mm -hmm. And I will say, I get the strategy of it. Yes. But not only was she significantly less wealthy than her cousin, she was a slave until her Lord Mansfield died. died. He, in his will, he freed her, but only then. Mm -hmm. And he had the power to free her before that. So she lived in this wealthy family and truly then only on the surface was she equal because she was literally enslaved Mm -hmm. to her uncle. Mm -hmm. Historians think that she was a, she was treated in the house as a loved but poor relation. But what her being a slave until this guy dies does is is say like, what is, what is that love? What, Mm -hmm. what is that love without that equality? By owning her as a slave, he isolates her, right? She can only marry after he dies and Mm -hmm. she is a free woman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So she's quite old when she marries. She's in her early thirties in real life. She does marry John Devinier. She has two sons. And really, she gets about 10 years of freedom. She dies in her early 40s. So you can have all this love and this affection. For one person. For one one individual person. But that doesn't mean that you are doing anything to dismantle these, these systemic racist systems. Which I... I understand very much why Asante made those changes in the movie. Like like you, Dancy, I get the impulse. Mm-hmm. And yet, I feel like the movie is so optimistic about the potential for the system to solve um, mm-hmm. these social problems. I like to think of Belle as like maybe the first in a new kind of period drama. And to be clear, I enjoyed watching this movie so much. Oh, I loved it. Great. I mean, oh, yeah. It's so enjoyable. Yes. Okay, can we talk before we do our kind of reflexive what's wrong with what we just did? Can we do some categories up in here? We have some awards to hand out. We got the hottest romantic lead. We've got best house. And then we've got most complicit, the Razzie of the pod. Mm -hmm. Let's begin. Who is the hottest? We always end on on such a downer, though. (laughs) (laughs) I'm good for it, though. Yeah. Uh, Who's the hottest? Darcy, obviously. Yeah, Darcy. Darcy. Is there a contest? It's not Thornton for me. Oh... He is sexy, but he's too problematic to be the hottest. Yes. Richard Armitage and Colin Firth 
I mean, that's a that's a tight race for me. But yeah. Darcy it's definitely an elevator all gets stuck in mm-hmm. for sure. <laughs> yeah. Best okay. house, Pemberley. Pemberley. Uh, most these ones were easy. Yeah, I, most far. complicit. I'm still going this, north and south. This is the hard question. This is hard. I guess you know I'm gonna say Pride and Prejudice, mm-hmm. and I love it. But I do I do want to give points to North and South for for gazing upon what it does, even though right. it doesn't do it properly. And I I'm gonna say- go North and South because as much as I appreciate that it's asking questions about class. I feel frustrated with the fact that it resolves those questions in such a fantasy way. And I almost am like, maybe I don't even want you to ask them if that's the answer Mm -hmm. you're going to give. Fair enough. I'm going to give it to Pride and Prejudice. I also want to maybe push back a little on just having a category of most complicit. Because Mm -hmm. I think as we've been talking about, these films are complicit in different ways to different structures of power. And I think if we, especially if we think about what Bell tells us, that structures of power don't exist linearly. They exist Mm -hmm. and not even, like, it's not even like intersection. It's like a web. It's like Mm -hmm. a Gordian knot. Yes. So you can't pick which one is better and worse. And this is a nice transition dance into something we wanted to do, which is talk about the problems also of the approach we just took. One of the things we talked about when we were deciding how we wanted to focus on these movies, we decided proposal scenes. They're nice, easy points of comparison. But in doing so, it does reinforce, even though I think our conversation showed how quickly you branch off, but it does kind of reinforce a little bit the idea that the romantic relationships are at the heart of these stories. I also think that the fact that it is so hard to figure out what the big romantic proposal scene is in a couple of these movies maybe points to this issue, right? That these movies are about much more than just a cut and dry proposal. The proposal is always about other things. I like that maybe the next place for the period drama to go is maybe away from romance, away from comfort. Away from the proposal. And more towards um, messier times in history that we can remember in more complicated ways. Mm-hmm. That's a really nice note to end on. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it. Mm-hmm.